0: This is Aspire, Arch Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship.
1: My name is Robert Rim, managing editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Andreas Merkel, CEO of Ocean Conservancy, whose goal is to bring people together to find practical and lasting solutions for our planet. Ocean Conservancy serves as a voice for the ocean, educating and empowering people to defend not only the ocean and its wildlife, but also the millions who earn their living from the ocean. Andreas was raised in Germany. He received his B.A. in Environmental Studies from the University of California, Santa Cruz. He received his Master of City and Regional Planning from the University of California, Berkeley, and his MBA with honors from Harvard Business School. Before joining Ocean Conservancy's team, Andreas worked for San Francisco's City Planning Department, McKinsey & Company, Climate Works Foundation, and California Environmental Associates. Andreas, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Good morning. You were raised on the banks of the Rhine River in industrial northern Germany. How did your upbringing shape your view
2: of the Earth? Well, my my father um, was pretty much the town doctor, um, and he was dip- deeply involved in public health issues. Um, and we lived right on the banks of the Rhine River, and the Rhine River in the '70s was basically a, uh, a bad place. Um, it was it you couldn't put a toe in it. Uh, basically, it was smelly. It was I think it had almost no dissolved oxygen um, anymore um, in it it was full of industrial contaminants. Um, and there was this movement to fix the river, which was five countries right and billions of dollars uh, incredibly complex. Um, and my father was deeply involved with that and I remember that they were looking for a, um, for a metric on, on how to you know how do we how do we define a clean river what are we going for? And they came up with this brilliant thing called, um, you know, a salmon run by two thousand. That seemed a long way away in, in the seventies. Um, but uh by golly they did it, right? You can there is a salmon run in the Rhine today. You can swim in the Rhine. Um, and it became just sort of, you know, in the aftermath of the first industrial revolution in Germany, what I was imbued with it as a kid is it's actually possible to fix these things, right? And I've sort of always stuck with that. <laughs>
1: And was that your key impetus for your investment in the environment?
2: Yeah, it was. That yeah. was well, This sort of you know this awareness is you're, you know you're not tilting against windmills. We can actually fix these things. Yeah, and that's certainly true for a lot of the things today t- as well. And and uh, we're going to talk about plastic in the oceans later. And that's certainly a fixable uh, problem.
1: And how did your time as a student uh, further develop your commitment to the environment?
2: Well, I you know. I died and went to heaven i I, I went
1: from a, <laughs> That's wonderful to hear <laughs>
2: <laughs> I went from a from a northern german industrial town to u c santa Cruz uh in in the seventies and if that doesn't shape your relation to the land, i don 't know what will right and I got to study ecology and natural history and geology and mathematics and so on uh in the most perfect setting imaginable with the most uh wonderful authentic uh passionate teachers um half the time the pl- the classrooms were outside um, and uh, you know of course that 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 sort of imprints you for for life right and then deepening that in um, doing a lot of um, you know getting deeply involved in the first remote sensing um, work really exciting the sense of real um, you know innovation uh, back in the early 80s when we realized uh, what computers really could do on the spatial side and how we could apply that um, you know Super fun days in 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 uh, in Berkeley, and and then on. You know, I mean, I really, it was such a lucky time uh, for this German boy to wash up on the shores of of California in nineteen seventy six. And what was
1: your work like with other organizations dedicated to environmental protection?
2: Well, it wasn't always with uh, you know I strayed a little bit, right. So, for example, I worked with McKinsey and Company, which is. Uh, not an environmental NGO by any stretch it's, a, it's an international uh, management consultancy um, but I was part of a group that started the environmental practice at um, at McKinsey and found it to be fascinating to be part of the Vanguard that started talking to you know industrial CEOs about why it is that Jay should care about this you know and and what the connection was about um, you know market access, right to operate um, you know corporate liabilities, Sourcing, um, uh, sourcing liabilities and reliabilities, um, and these things. Um, so that was that was just um, you know, uh, I got a lot out of integrating what I had done in school on the purely environmental side into the business end of things, and then. Um, more recently came back around in my work with California Environmental Associates and now here at the Ocean Conservancy, I come full circle in, in doing straight, straight up environmental work again. But I'm not sure that that even exists anymore. The pure play environmental work doesn't exist anymore really, right? This sort of the clean air work or the clean water act work um, that, that we did in the 70s. Now it's so much more fundamentally interconnected and so much more complex
1: understood and when you talked about uh, McKinsey, were your colleagues and your peers receptive to what you were trying to do at that time? There was a very
2: strong core group of people um, that absolutely got it and were as passionate as any group as I've ever seen on the nonprofit side. but of course we had some compl- we had some uh, um, uh, some convincing to do um, you know with our clients and even within the firm with the other directors, and partners uh, within the firm that this was something that a uh, management consultancy should be should be um, in the lead on, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because there was still a uh, you know back in the in the 80s and 90s there was still a sense of dichotomy, right? You could either make money or you could be an environmentalist, um, and that has long since proven to be a false dichotomy. And and as those domino stones fell. Um, you know it became easier and easier and you know today uh, McKinsey is is, is thriving in their sustainability and resource productivity practice and nobody talks about this in terms of a dichotomy anymore.
1: Right, which is wonderful to recognize and absolutely essential isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And uh, as far as the
1: Ocean Conservancy, how did you specifically come to it?
2: Um, I had always known the Ocean Conservancy through my consulting work uh, with foundations and even consulting work directly um, with the organization, and I was always so com- so impressed with how fundamentally sound they were. They had a great expert staff. Um, they they never took a sort of a straight strident campaign mentality of you know let's run a campaign for a short time and and uh, you know beat up people as hard as we can and and then plan the next campaign but they would take on the the long-term complex uh, problems you know when so when it came time to put together a a string of marine protected areas up and down the coast of California which was an eight-year process with over 1200 meetings believe it or not right um, that's perfect for ocean conservancy when it comes time to conceive of and defend um, and improve the 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 law that basically saved the fisheries um, in America, the Magnuson Stevens Act. That's been probably a fifteen year effort, and that's right up our alley. So they're very technical, very well involved, patient, non-strident, um, and that's exactly um, you know I, I find that extremely appealing. Um, and as it goes, um, one day a friend of mine who is a, a, a recruiter in this field called me and said, did I have any recommendations um, for a new CEO of, of Ocean Conservancy? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: to the benefit of the ocean, no doubt. Uh, and uh, you talked about, uh, as a childhood, uh, in your childhood, uh, uh, looking ahead 25, 30 years, and then uh, eight years and 15 years, and it's right up Ocean Conservancy's alley. Yeah. How does how do how do you get across this idea of being patient, which is so necessary on something like the environment, when uh, people are often uh, incredibly impatient? And therefore, their goals are kind of pushed to the side because they're not willing to wait the eight or ten years.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's the uh, maybe the central problem, right? Is what's your discount rate? Yeah, you know, to to what degree do do you devalue the future? Um, And there's a and then there's a second one is how do you deal with situations where you have uh, one of those relatively low probability but extremely catastrophic outcome. Mm. So what's the role of caution, right? And what's the role of the future? Um, And those ideas really divide the the ideological camps. Um, And, uh, you know, I I think that we have tried hard, um, and we we keep trying to make the case um, that the future uh, matters enormously, that we cannot... Um, you know, impact the future generations, um, that the precautionary principle must apply when you have incredibly nasty um, consequences, even if they are of low probability. Um, And that is an argument which just you know, for example, in climate change, sure. divides right. people. Some people just don't believe it, and um, this defines. I don't have a. I don't have a magic communication strategy through this, right? It defines the fight of our time.
1: Hmm. And, and there's
2: you, two camps to it, yeah. and I hope our camp wins.
1: Likewise, and you mentioned climate change, and there's another aspect where obviously there's huge disagreement, despite all evidence to the contrary. And if people can take a longer term view, uh, we'd all surely benefit from that. Uh, And in looking at Ocean Conservancy's uh, goals, uh, the Conservancy's been active for more than four decades. How has the organization and its goals changed with time?
2: Um, We used to, you know, back in the olden days, it was very much an education organization, ocean education organization. It then morphed into... Uh, what it is today, which was it's a you know as I said a deeply knowledgeable, a uh, very expert organization dedicated to progressing really great science into really great policy, with a significant focus on the United States and its its shores and oceans. Um, up to recently, our only international program really was the International Coastal Cleanup, um, which brings six hundred thousand people together every year to clean up the beaches all over the world. It's a wonderful program. Um, But currently what we're doing is we're branching out more internationally, not in the sense that we're starting to work in in Madagascar or Indonesia or uh, (laughs) Japan, but in the sense that we're tackling some of the fundamental problems that the oceans are encountering um, on an international scale, right? So the fundamental problem of overfishing, the fundamental boat of overcapacity of fishing fleets um, in the ocean, the fundamental problems of trying to predict where it is that what we're doing to the ocean in climate change that we're adding all that heat that we're adding all that entropy that we're taking out all that order in terms of high order fish predator fish and we're adding all of that heat back in in fact in- increasing the disorder in the ocean that's going to have some effects and some of those we know about and some of those are going to be emergent behaviors that we don't know about right so how do we improve our ability to predict a possible emergent behaviors of the oceans that could be very, very dangerous, and take the right steps first. Right. So we're getting more and more involved in some of the fundamental questions that we're facing in the ocean internationally, and then working with our friends and partners um, around the world to put in these insights to good use.
1: And how does Ocean Conservancy pursue your partnerships?
2: Well there's sort of there's two ways to do it, right? So first of all, if you want to solve these days a really thorny problem, a wicked problem, let's say overfishing, right? Overfishing in an age where the waters are going warmer and the, the fish stocks are starting to shift all over the place, right? That's a thorny, classically uh, difficult problem. You're not gonna so, you know no single organization can can solve that. Right? what you need to solve that is you need to bring together people from all kinds of different fields you need to build a global expert network of behavioral economists of, uh, of uh, experts in chaotic behavior uh, in, in network models uh, in fisheries management of course fisheries economics um, and agent-based modeling etc cetera, etc cetera, right so one way that we're doing uh, it in terms of partnerships is to really build formal, International expert networks um, that we are in the, the, the spider of the in the middle of that net. We are we built the platform that it allows that. We define the problem. We raise the money. Um, you know, we we drive the whole thing right. But it is a fundamentally um, team-based and collaborative exercise. The second way that we do it is when we have a special problem like plastics, right? Um, if you want to solve the ocean problem of course the ocean plastics problem which is a bad one of course we can't do it alone um, we need the help of industry the plastics industry we need the help of the consumer industry we need the help of governments we need the help of multilateral banks so then you put together an alliance so for example we put together the trash-free seas alliance that includes all of these people and is now we released a report yesterday uh, a major report on it We're we're basically pulling together the means to actually engage very meaningfully globally in trying to stem the avalanche um, of plastics. The third way you do it is that if you have done some fundamental work and have have developed some new approaches, that we work with our friends in the NGO industry. And it's an old myth, right, that the NGOs don't work well together. We're constantly in alliances with our friends um, uh, at ranging from Audubon to the Environmental Defense Fund to the Nature Conservancy to WWF um, around various topics, constantly talking with, with CEOs, are friends. Uh, you know, that's really a myth that we're not working together very well because we, we're all going to the same foundations for money. It's not true, right? So that happens as well. So basically, it's partnerships on three levels.
1: Understood, which is great to hear. And you mentioned the study... Uh, about plastics, which was the product of more than a year's worth of research about yeah. how to stop plastics from entering the ocean, the yeah. the study's called "Stemming the Tide: Land-Based Strategies for a Plastic-Free Ocean." Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, like I said, we used to pick up, and we're still picking up. We'll always pick up oceans uh, uh, trash from the beach. Right? It's called the International Coastal Cleanup. But after thirty years, it did dawn on us that we're. Uh, certainly not finding any less plastic on the beach, (laughs) 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 year year after year. Uh, And that if your basement is flooding, what you need to do is that you, of course, you want to bail out your basement, but you also need to find the leak and plug it, right? Um, And so uh, it's actually more than a year, three years ago, we started doing um, some uh, hard science on... Where is that plastic actually coming from? Where is it going, and what's the damage that it's doing? And the answers were pretty worrying, right? And uh, basically, what we found is that in the ocean, the the biosphere and the plastosphere are merging at a very worrisome uh, rate. Um, You're getting about eight million tons um, of plastic per ocean uh, per year into the ocean. That's equivalent to a big municipal garbage truck, compressed garbage truck, backing up every minute and dumping its content straight into the ocean.
1: Which is inconceivable. It's it's just so hard to even conceptualize, isn't it?
2: Right. What's well, even harder to conceptualize is that there's about 130 million tons already in the ocean. So if you put that additional 8 to 10 million tons a year on it, we're looking at a future by 2025, It's not very far from now, and we're going to have 250 million tons of plastic in the ocean. Just to calibrate that for for you, that's that's about one ton of plastic for every three tons of fish, mm. right? Mm. Now, most of these country does not come from Europe or United States. It comes from you know, and that makes sense. It comes from rapidly industrializing countries where the consumption of plastic outpaces um, their ability to treat the plastic in waste management like we have it, right? Um, and most of those countries are in asia and africa and right now it's really five countries in asia uh, that are sort of leading the way in terms of being a source for for ocean plastic and it's easy to to then say well they should not consume plastic or maybe we, to say well they should just recycle better but it's not as simple as that right? for for a, a rising middle class in asia uh, strong cheap Plastic is an enormous accelerator um, in their lifestyle. It brings clean water, it brings clean food, it brings clean medicine. Um, It it is enormously useful stuff. right? Um, And um, the problem is that most of it is different from ours. For us, a lot of the plastic is high value, like the water bottle that you might have on your table right now, which is a PET bottle, um, that you can recycle. In Asia, most of the plastic that ends up in the ocean is the thin film, right? It's a thin film that covers the fish so that the fly doesn't land on it so your children don't get typhoid. It's the thin baggie in which the clean water uh, comes to you so so you don't uh, drink contaminated water. Um, that's... that. Material is very, very strong. It's almost free. It's so cheap now, which is wonderful. But then, paradoxically, past the point of use, of course, it becomes very uh, difficult because it's still strong, i.e., lasts a long time. It's still very cheap. i It's not worth picking up, right? So it gets littered and not picked up, and then it blows into the ocean through various pathways. So really, what needs to happen? The only way that we can stop it hard and fast um, is not by wagging the finger. Um, not by uh, pointing to solutions that aren't going to get us there uh, but by pointing to, uh, to the obvious solution which is we need more fundamental waste management infrastructure in these five countries we need to create specifically we need to create the investment conditions that make it possible for private industry and private investors to, uh, to build at a, at a pretty large scale and very fast the fundamentals of m- waste management which is safe collection transportation, storage, and and treatment of those plastics. Um, So we've put together this coalition called the Trash Free Seas Alliance. Uh, Like I said, it has industry members, NGO members, financing members, and um, the results of all these analytics are in in this report we have just released. Um, And then in the next two years we are going to roll up our sleeves and get, get cracking in these countries to work with them, work with the banks, work with the politicians and the mayors and the governors, um, to put together these sort of uh, framework within which these kinds of investments can be can be profitably and safely made.
0: This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Andreas Merkel, CEO of Ocean Conservancy.
1: And what is the political environment these days? It, it seems so obvious, the need, and yet the investment um, could be overwhelming and may not be politically popular at home in these five countries. So how, do you, uh, how would you suggest or how do you intend to address the political environment in these countries?
2: Well, the mayors want it. Right, they, they do want it. The mayors want it. Oh yeah, because uh, plastic is a huge issue in many of these cities. Right, it, it promotes diseases. I mean, plastic post the you know plastic garbage, plastic trash. It promotes diseases because it contains you know it holds rainwater where mos- mosquitoes breed. It leaches. The, the dumps are a huge problem. There's child labor involved um, uh, in, in many places in the in the in the trash pickers. There's leachates um, of these dumps into the groundwater. It's unsightly. It lowers the quality of life. There's many reasons why the mayors really want and need to get a handle on it, but it's very difficult for them right now because it's a complex, um, you know, thing. You need to have everything lined up, right? Um, you need to have um, a uh, uh, purchasing standards. And contracting standards that hold up to international scrutiny and, and, and transparency stand uh, criteria, you need to have guarant- waste guarantee of supply guarantee so that a an investor comes come in and and build a plant and knows that the trash actually in a certain composition is going to arrive at the plant. You need to have offtake guarantees so that. The things that this plant makes, and it's probably going to be a fuel of some sort, you know, turning the plastic into gas or or sin fuels, that those are being bought for a given period at a given price, creating an income stream that you then capitalize to build the plant. You need to have the the, the, the policies right that allow the kind of technologies that you need. Um, You need to have international technology providers um, who actually are interested in in giving you the right solution rather than just selling you um, their quote unquote technologies. So it's a complex um, thing that needs to be put together, but the, there's an analogous uh, situation to that, which is renewable energy. And if you go to the Philippines now, for example, right there were exactly the same issues 10 years ago on wind energy. The the offtake agreements, the contractual arrangements, uh, the 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 legal guarantees, the policy guarantees, um, and they cracked that, right? They cracked that at a national and a local level, uh, and a regional level. And now these turbines are going up everywhere. So it's not unprecedented. We just need to go in there and we and and do it. So we're gonna we're gonna pick some pioneering regions in the next year or two, uh, and crack that code create those conditions, and then work with an international uh, set of investors that have to include market-based investors, multilateral investors, industry investors, and so on, um, to actually make this happen.
1: And given the palpable benefits from where you stand today, would you say that you're optimistic about, uh, about cracking this in these countries?
2: Yeah, there's two reasons, right? So the local co-benefits of it are really large, as I al- already uh, mentioned, right? Um and the reason that we've figured this out in the Europe in Europe and in the United States is precisely because these local co-benefits are so strong, right? Uh, but there's another thing is which is this is a global problem. People around the world are becoming extremely upset by this merging of the biosphere and the plastic sphere in the ocean. Right? This is disgusting, this is people this is very visceral to people. Um, People also eat fish. People swim in the ocean, right? It's 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 a real tangible problem. Problem. It's at the it's it's um, it's on the list of of things to tackle uh, this year in the G seven, led by the Germans. Um, APEC is 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 deeply involved in that. It's on the list that was recently announced just a couple of days ago in New York as the Sustainable Development Goals by the UN. So there's a lot of international attention, so this is sort of a global to local focusing that we can now do, Um, taking this global uh, uh, awareness, and global resources, and global expertise, and focusing it on the big vectors of plastics that are going into the ocean. And the good thing, if there's anything good about this, of course, is that it's not coming evenly into the ocean, that we know where it's it's coming from. a small number of countries and within these countries a small number of cities and rivers and watersheds so we can relentlessly focus that sort of global pressure and resources and expertise on these places, we can get there in the next 10 years. We figure that we can cut 50% of the plastic load in the ocean within 10 years if we concentrate on the top 5 countries.
1: Which is a huge figure. That's a big figure, yeah. And in parallel to working with uh, these countries and and the political situation is is the aspect of volunteers, and Ocean Conservancy's International Coastal Cleanup is the world's largest volunteer effort to clean up waterways in the ocean. So how do you, as an organization, mobilize volunteers and maximize the impact that they have?
2: I think it's one of the larger volunteer efforts anywhere, right? And it shows how much people care about this. Um, I was just on Lake Ponchard train um, for this year's cleanup, and there were 1900 people. Uh, its just stunning and, 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 and from every walk of life conceivable. This is something that we all agree on, right? So um, so first of all, of course we, we create we, we, we uh, uh, collect hundreds of millions of pounds of of trash that way, which is wonderful. It doesn't solve the problem by itself, but you do have the net benefit of that trash being out of the water. Secondly, uh, we have over the years collected the best database. Uh, it's really a, it's it's a citizen science event because we're, every one of the volunteers has a, has a, a scorecard, and every cigarette butt and every straw and and um, you know is is basically scored. Yeah. So we know exactly what's on the beaches, and we know how that changes over time, um, and that's become a very useful database for scientists that are working on this um, to figure out have a very detailed point of view. Uh, at least at one layer, right? at one medium, which is the beach, of what's actually going on and how, and how those change over time and also between regions.
1: And the Ocean Conservancy doesn't just focus on the ocean itself, uh, but also on the people who depend on the ocean for food, for jobs, for recreation. So how do you balance both uh, both aspects, and, and do they in fact work together?
2: And so the ocean is one of those, uh, it's probably the, the best example where the optimum yield you get from the ocean is also the is the sustainable yield right and it's almost counterintuitive that in many in many occasions right you're going to actually catch more fish if you uh, if you fish less right so there is in other words there is a point at which you're optimizing both the sustainability of the ocean and your yield year after year. And unless you have a discount rate that is very high, unless you discount the future completely and you just want to slaughter all the stocks now and go home in four years, right? if you actually want to keep fishing year after year, there's a very defined point where the interests of ecology and the interests of economy perfectly over uh, 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 come together, overlay in the ocean, so it's it's unique that way. Maybe not unique. I mean, you find similar things in you know in uh, on terrestrial, but it's very it's very stark in the ocean. So the interests of people um, and the interests of the animals in the oceans are very starkly aligned. That's point number one. Point number two is the ocean's functionality is absolutely essential right if we mess around with the ocean functionality in in a meaningful way that's a civilization ending event right because the ocean does things for us like it produces the majority of oxygen it produces it binds most of the uh, uh, the carbon Um, it traps most of the heat the extra heat that comes from climate change it distributes that heat through massive currents like the Gulf Stream. Um, and in order to do that, right, it doesn't just depend on uh, physical characteristics, on the exchange of heat and so on. A lot of that is actually done by the biota. So, in other words, you need a healthy biota in the ocean for it to do things that we absolutely depend on, like create oxygen and bind carbon. And if you upset the food chains, if you upset the, product- the productivity, if you upset the diversity of productivity um, in the ocean you're messing you're messing with some very basic functionalities that we depend on on a fundamental level so it's more than where our interests are somewhat aligned um, and uh... economy and ecology go together it is it is really in the sort of deeply existential realm of we better make sure that that complex system Stays healthy
1: which is scientifically uh, supported across the board, so do you find that people who depend on the ocean for their livelihoods by and large get it?
2: yeah the fishermen by and large get it um, they get it and and the degree to which they get it um, depends on the degree to which they own the resource, right so if you simply have a boat and um, you're allowed to go anywhere you want to but you don't own anything, pretty soon you have a race for fish. Yeah. Right. You, go, you start competing with each other, there's more and more boats in the water, you race for the fish um, and you don't. even if you're the best steward in the world you know that the fish you don't catch somebody else will, so you better go get it first. That completely changes if I tell you the fisherman that you actually have a share in the underlying stock year after year, or that you actually you and your village uh, in Indonesia or wherever own a piece of ocean, because then suddenly the fruits of your stewardship basically return back to you, right? You get to harvest your stewardship's um, rewards, um, and it is just astonishing how that changes everything. So. To the degree that the system allows people to, they become very good stewards of the ocean. It just it just flips if the system gets rigged to the point where there's nothing you can really do except hit it as hard as possible because if you don't, somebody else will. Which means
1: uh, it, it, that's a guaranteed formula to fail, right?
2: There is no open access fishery on the planet I'm aware of that has not failed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. And. Um we were talking earlier about the political climate uh, and you mentioned climate change. Uh, would you say that, um, that you face some of the same issues uh, as far as the different constituencies uh, with the ocean as people do with climate change? Or is, there a, is it a more unified body behind it?
2: There is, of course, a group of political operatives in this country that is opposing us. Um, on every step um, because they perceive um, you know, a, any constriction uh, to a free access to resources as government overreach. Even if those restrictions like the Magnuson-Stevens Act um, has shown that um, it leads to incredible results full recovery of the fisheries, increased yields, et cetera. Um, and those folks we, we deal with all the time. They, they uh, oppose key pr- uh, provisions of the Magnus and Stevens Act. Um, they oppose um, attempts to um, do good um, spatial analysis of the ocean and come to certain conclusions of that, uh, based on that. So we, we run against that too. Uh, It's not at the same level of fervor, skepticism, and denial um, as what we encounter on the climate change side. But then, I defy you to pry apart from me the climate change and ocean agendas anymore these days. The climate agenda has become our agenda and the ocean agenda has become the climate agenda. right? So the, 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 the ocean cannot adapt to, the world, the planet cannot adapt to climate change. Even if we, if, even if we cut off CO2 now, we know it's going to get hotter, right? Um, because of the physics of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, the ocean is going to, you know, if anything is going to bail the planet out, um, it's going to be the ocean because of its absorptive capacity of carbon, uh, of heat transfer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So, uh, and vice versa, the ocean is not going to take kindly to an unmitigated CO2 future. The the two agendas have become completely interwoven, Um, and so we are subject to the same um, insanity that is going on on the the climate change denial side um, as our colleagues that are working on straight CO2 mitigation issues.
1: So it would seem that the the climate change... Uh, uh, people who are absolutely against any any kind of uh, intervention like that it would seem that that makes your job harder doesn't it because they are so interwoven?
2: Uh, yes of course and and you know you are constantly in this um, quandary right if you're an ocean activist these days because the ocean is a complex system right if you stress a complex system um, really badly it's going to respond, and it's going to respond sometimes in drastic and, uh, and, and uh, 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 you know, unforeseen, unexpected ways. So a part of you just wants to basically say, look, this is the most important threat that we're facing. You know, we should just be working on climate change issues for now. But then, of course, there's a myriad of issues that also need a, a real champion in the ocean. Things like overfishing and habitat destructions and the plight of of the reefs, and um, coastal restoration, and uh, um, the need for marine protected areas, it's, uh, the plight of specific species. You know, there's a myriad of things to do. Um, and so we're a little bit always torn behind, um, you know, the, 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 the big 800 pound gorilla in the corner, uh, which is this heating ocean, you know, and the very specific, more classical ocean advocacy things that we need to do.
1: And in talking to you, um, you appear to be an optimistic uh, person. Uh, were you an optimism, uh, an optimistic person as a teenager? Has that carried through your entire life? In in the well, wake I'm of, in I'm the sure wake.
2: i of I went through my nihilistic period as it, as every teenager did. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I recovered quickly. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: um, and and in your position, you really do need to be an optimist, don't you?
2: Yeah, and I am. I think we're going to figure this out. Yeah.
1: And um, just taking a, a broader uh, uh, picture here about learning and about science, uh, you present evidence that really can't be refuted uh, and it seems that some people are eager to learn throughout their lives and other people reach the age of 40, 50, maybe they've reached a certain point in life. Um, they basically stop the intrinsic desire to learn and to be curious about things. Uh, have you found that dichotomy and and if so, why why do you find that to be?
2: Why do I find that people stop learning?
1: Yeah, the the lack of curiosity because all kids have a curiosity, but it seems that that some people. Uh, they reach a certain point in life or a certain age and they, they really don't have the same kind of curiosity in others. They get I
2: only, only have a personal hypothesis about this, right? Because at a certain point in life, if you think about phenomena in separation from each other in, in an anecdotal way, right? It becomes pretty hard to put together a coherent picture of what's going on. Right, you you you, f- you keep finding your, your your mental models getting smashed, um, and that gets tiring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. right? Right. Who, who, who wants that, right? Yeah. Uh, but but if if you've really been pressed to do something very painful, right, which is to, to take you know assistance perspective on things, and not wander and not get lost in anecdotal evidence, uh, and and not get lost in sort of a, a, a stovepipe view of the world. Uh, but constantly are pushed by your job or or um, by your environment or by your students or whatever uh, sort of umfeld you're in um, to think about how things un- you know interrelate and 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 how systems actually work together right how how do things emerge? why do things emerge um, how does change really happen then then it's just endlessly co- uh, you know, fascinating Um, and you never stop it just that view of the world just just takes you over and it's uh, you know I couldn't imagine not uh, wondering anymore every day um, how these things all hang together. Mm.
1: Which is wonderful to be able to recognize and it also gives us optimism about uh, the future for Ocean Conservancy so I'll ask you the question uh, what does the future hold for Ocean Conservancy?
2: Where, you know, in those big, thorny, global resource problems, practically all of them, the ocean plays a very central role. It doesn't always play the central role, but it always plays a central role. We basically want to represent the ocean in those big, um, complicated, global resource debates, whether it's the debate on how to feed nine billion people, the renewable energy debate, what's the role of the ocean in providing food and in providing renewable energy, in the general climate change debate that we had um, just uh, discussed, in the debate around circular economy and how we make the best um, use of the raw materials that we have, you know, the, the big sort of systems debate and how do we live on this planet with 9 billion people ocean conservancy is going to be you know is is is, is hoping to and will be if it isn't already the most tr- one of the most trusted representatives of the ocean not as a thing in and of itself but in its full glorious interconnectedness with 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 everything else
1: and all of which affect every single one of us indeed yeah and taking a, uh, a larger uh, picture at uh, uh, young people who are listening to this podcast and young people in general uh, who are looking to become involved with nonprofits, do you have any s- specific advice that you'd offer to young social entrepreneurs, uh, optimistic young students, uh, people t- uh, looking to become involved with, with the environment, with nonprofits?
2: Um, don't just look to the environment. Don't just look to nonprofits right find something that absolutely intrinsically fascinates you so for example are you a network builder right are you somebody who um indul- you know loves building really complicated uh, models do you like to take things apart um do you are you a storyteller right I, you know, rather than saying I want to be an environmental guy or I want to work for an NGO, you should really worry about what it is that you want to get up every day and uh, to do, what, how it is that you want to spend your day, right? And, and, and go with that. Um, and then it's going to evolve what you're going to do. And you're going to uh, be happy. And maybe that means an NGO career or an environmental career, but maybe you'll be the guy that You know, creates unbelievably realistic three-dimensional virtual environments, which revolutionizes the way that we work and travel um, and takes a few gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere, which is more than you might have achieved if you've become an environmental lawyer. Right. Mm. Um, So um, do it that way.
1: And on that positive note, the best way to reach Andreas and to support Ocean Conservancy is through OceanConservancy.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Andreas, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
2: Pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.